Good evening. Madeleine Albright, the first woman to be United States Secretary of State, is laid to rest. Is the war in Ukraine part of her legacy? Nuke threats and nuke plants get the attention of NATO and the United Nations. Despite news to the contrary, COVID-19 is still with us and the mayor's budget and the unhoused. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, April 27th, 2022. Russia cut off natural gas to NATO members Poland and Bulgaria today and threatened to do the same to other countries. The move, condemned by European leaders as blackmail, marked a dramatic escalation in the economic war of sanctions and counter-sanctions that's unfolded in parallel to the fighting on the battlefield. The tactic coming a day after the United States and other Western allies vowed to rush more and heavier weapons to Ukraine could eventually force targeted nations to ration gas and could deal another blow to economies suffering from rising prices. Poland has been a major gateway for the delivery of weapons to Ukraine and confirmed this week that it is sending the country tanks just hours before Russia's state energy giant Gazprom acted. Bulgaria has hosted Western fighter jets at a new NATO outpost on Bulgaria's Black Sea coast as well. Gazprom said it cut off the two nations because they refused to pay in rubles, the Russian currency, as President Vladimir Putin has demanded of unfriendly, as he calls them, nations. Despite the growing tensions, there was some good news today in the deteriorating relations between East and West. Russia and the United States carried out an unexpected prisoner exchange in a time of high tensions, trading a Marine veteran jailed by Moscow for a convicted Russian drug for a for a trading right one for another for a convicted Russian drug trafficker serving a long prison sentence in the United States. In a scene reminiscent of the film Bridge of Spies, the two captives were rushed from one plane to another parked next to each other at an airfield in Turkey. Trevor Reed, a 30-year-old former Marine from Texas, was arrested in the summer of 2019 after Russian authorities said he assaulted an officer while being driven by police to a police station following a night of heavy drinking. The Russian, Konstantin Yeroshenko, was arrested in Liberia in 2010 and extradited to the United States on drug trafficking charges, where he was sentenced to 20 years. Other Americans, including WNBA star Brittany Greener and Michigan corporate security executive Paul Whelan, will remain jailed in Russia. Meanwhile, in Washington, the architect of United States policies that contributed to the growing tensions between the United States and Russia was laid to rest today. Madeleine Albright, a child of conflict-ravaged Europe who arrived in the United States as an 11-year-old girl and became America's first female Secretary of State. President Joe Biden remembered Albright as the champion of her adopted country as the world's indispensable nation. It was not lost on me that Madeleine was a big part of the reason NATO was still strong and galvanized as it is today. And a few days later, I traveled to Poland and spoke about all that was at stake in our world and for democracy and freedom, which is under assault from forces of autocracy and oppression. And as President Biden earlier today. Meanwhile, Hillary Clinton, who was the next female secretary of state before a failed bid for the presidency, said she that Albright brought a desire to fight for democracy abroad and at home. Stand up to dictators and demagogues from the battlefields of Ukraine to the halls of our own capital. 
defend democracy at home just as vigorously as we do abroad. Live up to the ideals of the country that welcomed an 11-year-old refugee sailing into New York Harbor on a ship called SS America and made her Secretary of State. Former President Bill Clinton remembered Albright as a no-nonsense, valued advisor who didn't suffer fools or tyrants and was most concerned about Russia's war with Ukraine when she died last month of cancer. All the things she did with Kosovo, with Bosnia, we see it in so many ways. Today, we have the president, the prime minister, and the former president of Kosovo here. It took us until the slaughter of Srebrenica, but finally we got enough people together to do what's now being done in a different way to try to save Ukraine. But not everyone agrees with the glowing portrait of Madeleine Albright, the communications director for the Institute for Public Accuracy is Sam Husseini. He just wrote the piece, Albright's Funeral, the Sword and Cross Come Together, on his Substack page. He writes, Albright's policies of expanding NATO, bombing Yugoslavia, help set the stage for the extraordinarily dangerous situation now with Russia and China. The U.S. pretext for its attack on Yugoslavia regarding Kosovo was that there was a genocide going on and we had to bomb to stop it, which in some ways is echoed by what the Russians are saying now. The issue with that is regarding Yugoslavia is that Albright rigged the the Rambouillet peace talks. They threw in an appendix which called for the occupation of Yugoslavia. She in effect compelled the Serbs to walk away from that deal and then used that as a pretext for bombing. Later on, insiders came out basically saying she just said the Serbs needed some bombing. That was that. The bombing actually made matters worse. The U.S. and NATO bombing of Yugoslavia was incredibly reckless. They bombed all kinds of facilities. They bombed two countries outside of Yugoslavia, Albania and Bulgaria. Chinese Um, embassy too, right? Yeah, now that was a huge thing. They they bombed the Chinese embassy. Albright said that it was balderdash, that it was intentional, but an investigation by the Observer in England, which was widely ignored in the United States, found that it was intentional. The Chinese were in the hot seat the night before the bombing. The Russians were on board, but it wasn't clear if the Chinese were on board. And that was the hot topic then. And the next day is when the Chinese embassy was bombed. That's never been meaningfully explained. Hillary Clinton, in her speech, specifically heralded Albright for her warlike demeanor, bringing a warlike demeanor. They're willing to go as far as they can not only in fighting for democracy in the world, but domestically within the United States. That's true. Hillary Clinton did have that demeanor in her speech. The Warsaw Pact collapsed and then NATO expanded, went eastward, contrary to what the U.S. was told Gorbachev, and then started bombing Yugoslavia, um, all incredibly provocative. You know, even Yeltsin was very pro-U.S. at the time, who was warning about World War III. And critically, I also found that Yeltsin um, put Putin in as head of their foreign policy committee five days after the bombing of Yugoslavia started. I think the bombing of Yugoslavia really helped um, 
uh, Putin's career because it showed the Russians basically we, we need somebody who is capable of pushing back against the U.S. and NATO. Yeltsin then made him prime minister, and then by the end of the year, he was named acting president. It's sort of blowback from the bombing of Yugoslavia. And by using NATO in this way, she laid the groundwork for using in Europe, and then it was then used in Asia, Yugoslavia, and then used in Africa, in Libya. It was almost like Providence was saying, pay attention to the long-term consequences of your foreign policy. It's amazing that people are not re-examining the expansion of NATO. What happens next is that people need to scrutinize policy and examine it. And that is Sam Husseini, Communications Director for the Institute for Public Policy for Public Accuracy. Madeleine Albright was 84. And Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said today Russia's most recent threats of escalating its attack on Ukraine into a nuclear conflict are unhelpful and irresponsible. You heard us say a number of times that that kind of rhetoric is very dangerous and unhelpful. Nobody wants to see a nuclear war happen. It's a war that where all sides lose. And so rattling of sabers and dangerous rhetoric is clearly unhelpful and something that we won't engage in. Meanwhile, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov uh, a day earlier said that the threat of nuclear war should not be underestimated and that the danger is serious. The comments were a response to the U.S. and other NATO countries supplying billions of dollars in aid and weapons to Ukraine, which Lavrov called pouring oil on the fire in the conflict. Moscow has frequently held the threat of nuclear weapons over NATO since Russia's invasion of Ukraine began on February 24th. Meanwhile, the chief of the United Nations International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, Rafael Mariano Grossi, says the level of safety at Europe's largest nuclear plant currently under Russian occupation in Ukraine is like a red light blinking as his organization tries in vain to get access for work, including repairs. Grossi said the IAEA needs access to the Zaporizhia plant in southern Ukraine so its inspectors can, among other things, reestablish connections with the Vienna-based headquarters of the UN agency. The uh, physical integrity of one nuclear power plant, Saporizia, was compromised. We, we had also situations where the external power was interrupted, including here. Um, so there were a number of uh, events that were compromising the normal operation of any nuclear facility. The situation is not stable, so we have to keep on alert. We have been working with the Ukrainian regulator. We have to assess the situation. We have to do some repair work. Radiation level, I would say, is normal. There have been some moments where the levels have gone up because of the movement of the heavy equipment that the Russian forces were bringing here and when they left. But we are following that day by day. And that was Raffaello Moriano Grossi. He is the uh, chief of the IAEA. With 15 reactors, one of the largest nuclear power capacities in the world, the war has essentially turned parts of Ukraine into a nuclear minefield. Again and again since the invasion, nuclear experts have watched in alarm as Russian forces have come close to multiple nuclear power plants in Ukraine. A Chernobyl security worker told the AP that the Russians flew aircraft over the damaged reactor site and dug trenches in the highly radioactive dirt. On Monday, Russian cruise missiles flow over the Kamelensky nuclear plant in western Ukraine.
And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul Durienzo. Dr. Anthony Fauci is no, says that uh, the United States is no longer in the pandemic phase of COVID-19, more than two years after the coronavirus first began wreaking havoc on the nation. Speaking with PBS NewsHour's Judy Woodruff, Fauci said, we are certainly right now in this country out of the pandemic phase, saying namely, we don't have 900,000 new infections a day and tens and tens and tens of thousands of hospitalizations and thousands of deaths. We are at a low level at this time. The COVID coordinator for the White House is Dr. Ashish Jha. He had this to say about COVID in America. One hand, we know that BA2, the sub-variant of Omicron, has become dominant. Cases are rising across the country. Um, but hospitalizations are at the lowest level of the pandemic. And deaths are continuing to fall. We're down to about 300 deaths a day. Still too many, still too high, but doing so much better than we have throughout much of this pandemic. Despite all of that progress, and I think a lot of that is driven by the fact that we have more than 200 million Americans vaccinated, more than 100 million Americans uh, boosted, we know this virus is tricky. Um, We know that the risk of potential surges, even of a potential new variant, remains out there. The good news is we are at a point where we have a lot more capabilities, a lot more tools to protect the American people. Testing, vaccines, therapeutics, these are the sort of the pillars of how we manage the rest of this pandemic. And that is, um, again, Dr. Ashish Jha. He's the White House COVID coordinator. Closer to home, New York's top court today rejected the congressional and state Senate maps drawn by the Democratic-led legislature earlier this year as unconstitutional and a key victory for New York Republicans. The 4-3 ruling would upend, could upend the scheduled June party primaries and force lawmakers back to the drawing board to draw new maps. The court found, quote, the enactment of the congressional and Senate maps by the legislature was procedurally unconstitutional, and the congressional map is also substantively unconstitutional as drawn with impermissible partisan purpose, leaving the state without constitutional district lines for use in the 2022 primary and general election. The ruling is a victory for Republicans who had challenged the maps to state court on the grounds the new new districts favored Democrats and violated the state's constitutional ban on partisan redistricting. New lines will now be in the hands of what's known as a special master appointed by a lower court this month. That's according to the ruling. And yesterday, Mayor Eric Adams gave his State of the State address, also marking his first 100 days in office, a rare confluence of both events. He had this to say about the budget and particularly about uh, homeless people and how he's going to handle crime in New York. A State of the City address on Tuesday, Mayor Eric Adams celebrated the accomplishments from his first 100 days in office, outlined his vision for the city's future and released a $99.7 billion executive budget for the next fiscal year. Adams spoke about the lingering trauma of the pandemic and the need for an equitable recovery. These first 100 days were not easy for our city. We have been tried and tested by some of the most historic difficulties and urgent crises this city has ever gone through. The pandemic has hallowed out our economy and threatened people's livelihoods, stability, and mental health. Housing prices remain out of the reach of working people of this city. Too many of our brothers and sisters are living on the streets in need of support and shelter. 
The mayor repeatedly stressed his core philosophy that safety and justice are the prerequisites of prosperity. At one point, he spoke directly to the family members of people killed in violence in the city who were in attendance, and he took a swipe at advocates of defunding the police. And so when you hear people say, we don't need our police, let me tell you right here and right now, I will support my police and we will make our city a safe city. The executive budget adds $256 million for public safety initiatives, particularly funding for the mayor's subway safety plan released in February. That number includes $55 million to send mental health professionals to respond to certain 911 calls instead of police officers. About $171 million of those funds will go to adding 1,400 new safe haven and stabilization beds for unsheltered New Yorkers. The funding will also help create a dedicated gun crime unit in the office of the medical examiner to expedite DNA analysis. The mayor, in a City Hall news conference earlier in the day, addressed the decision by some city district attorneys to no longer prosecute turnstile jumpers. He said even if the DAs don't prosecute, police will continue to arrest. We're going to identify those locations where you have rampant fare evasion. And even if the choice is not to prosecute, we're going to arrest. You know, our job is to arrest when a crime is carried out prosecutors must uh, make sure that they prosecute. We're not going to take the position, but we know you're not prosecuting, so we're not going to arrest. No, we're not doing that. Adams' budget allocated an additional $285 million for education and youth employment. That includes $101 million to add 10,000 slots to the Summer Rising program, which provides summer learning and enrichment courses. The funding will increase the program's total capacity to 210,000 slots for K-12 students. The mayor also allocated $118 million more in funding for parks, the city's streets master plan to restore an organics recycling program, and for a recently launched trash container pilot program. The new spending that Adams proposed was offset by additional revenues and savings. In the executive budget, estimates for tax revenue in the current fiscal year were $1.6 billion higher than in the preliminary budget. And that was uh, Mayor Eric Adams yesterday speaking about his uh, new budget. Christine Quinn is president and CEO of WIN, which is the largest provider of shelter and supportive services for homeless families. She says while Mayor Adams is right to invest in programs for homeless New Yorkers like safe haven beds, she can't forget that nearly 60 percent of homeless New Yorkers are families with children and they need and deserve investments too. Quinn spoke with WBAI today. A lot of what the mayor put in the budget, like stabilization beds, like safe haven beds, are good things. And things that advocates, particularly those for single homeless individuals, have called for for a long time. That said, no one would say this is enough for a whole host of reasons. One, the investment in building affordable housing is significantly less than the campaign promise. It was $5 billion a year when he was candidate Adams. Now it's $5 billion over 10 years. Very, very different. Also, from my perspective as the president of Women in Need, the largest shelter and permanent housing facility for families with children, we are completely let at, left out of the budget and the mayor's response. 
65% of everyone in shelter last night was a family with children. There are more children in shelter than there are seats in the Barclays Center. Yet we see no new initiatives to help homeless families with children. And in fact, we see proposed cuts of at least 3% to the Department of Homeless Services. Cutting is not the way to end the homeless crisis. Is he sweeping up or trying to justify sweeping up homeless single men who are seen sleeping in subways by taking money away from where historically the vast part of the, you know, I worked in the school system and we had homeless shelters in our catchment area that directly brought by bus to kids. I taught them every day. Right, right, right. I want to be clear. I'm not saying that they've taken the money away from homeless families, but they have not added any. And there's a cut. It's very, very curious. I don't actually care to tell you the truth, the rationale of why an elected official does something. If they do it for press, if they do it for spin, if they do it out of the goodness of their heart or because it's their true north, I don't care. As long as it's the right thing and there is nothing in this budget that is the right thing or anything for homeless families. Subways aren't in good shape. A homeless encampments here have been ripped down three, four times in the last few weeks with people arrested and the whole community getting in an uproar about it again. The mayor says it's not right, it's not dignified to live on the street or in an encampment. And he's right. No one disagrees with that. But the question is, how do we get those individuals to places where they can get served? And how do we get them to permanent quality, affordable housing. Yes, the stabilization and safe haven beds will help with that, but if the only way they find out about them is through their encampment being torn up, they are not going to be compelled to go. Just explain to us what exactly a safe haven and a um, stabilization bed are. When you go into a shelter, you're basically going into an institution, if you will, not a psychiatric institution, but an institution that has rules and regulations that you have to follow. And you meet with case managers and work towards getting permanent housing. A safe haven bed, you don't have to make all of those commitments. You can stay a night, you can stay two nights, you can stay three nights. And they're really a great model for engaging folks who have disengaged from the system because maybe something went wrong or they perceived something went wrong. A really great model to get them back in and then eventually get them into more focused, deeper service. Right, but this, of course, is all far short of housing. Look, it all goes together, right? For many folks, step one is not housing. And that's okay. We need we need to address that. But a step in the process, whether it's two or whether it's seven, is permanent housing. And we do not have enough money in this budget for permanent housing. Because remember, when I say affordable housing nowadays, that means for formerly homeless and homeless people, the working poor, low-income people, and middle-income people in New York City. That is the reality. Christine Quinn is president and CEO of WIN, which is the largest provider of shelter and supportive services for homeless families in the city. The city has until June 30th to approve a final budget.
And finally, it's Holocaust Remembrance Week, Days of Remembrance, as the youngest survivors of the mass murder of at least six million Jews and millions of others by the Nazis during World War II. Those survivors are moving into their mid-70s, many feisty, but others not well. The survivors requiring even more care. New York Governor Kathy Hochul met with the survivors today as she announced funding to support the Holocaust Survivors Initiative, providing a range of services. Hochul also announced $25 million for additional security to protect communities most affected by hate crimes. Here's the governor speaking in Borough Park today. Great to be back in Borough Park. As I said to David, I'm here a lot. Uh, and to come this particular week, Holocaust Remembrance, you know, President Biden acknowledged that we should honor this the entire week. I say we honor it 365 days a year. This is not a one day, one week phenomenon, but we'll take this week to pause and I reflect on what that means. And, you know, we, I actually went to a number of the camps. Uh, I was in Austria, Germany. It was part of um, a family outing to make sure that my children had a chance to be aware, be cognizant that in their own grandparents' lifetime, the most horrific atrocities were committed against fellow human beings. And I wanted them to know that this was not historical stories from 150 years, 200 years ago, Middle Ages. It happened, and there's people still alive who survived this. And that was important for me as a parent to teach my own children about what man is capable of doing to other men and women. And I'm fearful of what we see over occurring not far from there in Ukraine. I've been reaching out to a lot of the communities to support the Ukrainian Jews who are feeling under siege right now, and they need a place to go. They need a place to heal and recover. And I cannot think of a better place than the great state of New York, which has the largest Ukrainian population. We're proud of that. But the Jewish community often feels under siege, and they need the special warmth and love that we believe only New York can offer. So I've extended the welcome, uh, the resources, the conversations with the State Department saying, let us be first. And so that'll continue the tradition of taking people away from the horrors of life and letting them come to New York and heal. And you are examples of what that healing looks like to be able to come here to this Borough Park Y and to rekindle and friendship, friendships, start new friendships, have activities that are stimulating to share your stories, to talk about grandkids, somebody might even have a hundred grandkids and great grands I heard from somebody. A hundred grandchildren sounds magnificent. And uh, as uh, one of you said, that is your revenge on Hitler, because you just grew families, grew families and said, we still not just survive, we thrive, we thrive. As Governor Hochul, New York State is home to nearly 40,000 Holocaust survivors, 40 percent of whom are living in poverty. Sixty one percent of Holocaust survivors emigrated from the former Soviet Union before coming to the United States. They receive little to no Social Security income and are extremely poor. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, April 27, 2022. The news was produced with Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.